Okay. One, okay. two, three. Oh, it's like oh, lemonade. This is weird. Just like what? <laughs> Why is this so delicious? What the hell? What, wait, what have you done to me? <laughs> so before one of our pop-up magazine shows, a handful of the crew and performers let us put red pills on their tongues without having any idea what they were taking and what they were in for. Hey, we're good people. And it's not like we didn't do it ourselves. But I must admit, it was amazing how easy it was to get people to take pills without telling them what they were. We'll tell you what those pills were later on. But for now, what you need to know is that we were screwing with their taste buds. That's right. This episode, we're going to get to the bottom of our sense of taste. How does it work and how can we mess with it? Why do we taste the things we taste? And can the answers to these questions help us hack taste to tackle some of today's biggest health problems? You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And before we reveal the secrets of one of the most important ways we interact with the world, we have some sponsors to tell you about. Today's show is sponsored by CrowdCow. CrowdCow lets you buy the very best beef from happy cows raised on the open pastures of small sustainable ranches without any growth hormones or growth-stimulating antibiotics. You can't find premium dry-aged beef from these farms anywhere else, including high-end supermarkets or specialty stores. And for our listeners, you can get $10 off your first order when you go to crowdcow.com gastropod. That's crowdcow.com gastropod. And another sponsor, Joanne Fluke, New York Times bestselling author and queen of culinary mystery, has whipped up her latest recipe-filled book, Banana Cream Pie Murder. Series sleuth Hannah Swenson returns from her honeymoon to find Lake Eden ripe with murder. Can she solve the case without going bananas, or will the killer give her the slip? Banana Cream Pie Murder by Joanne Fluke is on sale now everywhere books are sold. More info at kensingtonbooks.com. This episode of Gastropod is made possible in part with funding from Science News, your source for surprising and important science reporting. This week, the shocking portion of fish meal fish that are perfectly good to eat. And how many stressed out stink bugs does it take to spoil a batch of red wine? Discover science for foodies and everyone else at sciencenews.org gastropod. We're also proud to be supported in part by the Burroughs Welcome Fund to promote science communication and our coverage of biomedical research. So this is kind of a broad question, but what is taste? (laughs) Yep, that's pretty broad. That's Robin Dando. He's an assistant professor of food science at Cornell University, and he specializes in the study of taste. Taste is one of our five senses. You know the ones. Sight, sound, touch, smell, and taste. So taste, like smell, is a chemical sense. Our taste buds are detecting chemicals. The taste bud sits just below the surface uh, of your tongue. We have a few of them around uh, the insides of our mouths as well. But most of them are concentrated in the tongue. A taste bud looks kind of like a very tiny little yellow onion. It's a spherical clump of cells. It has a little bunch of root-looking nerves coming out the bottom, like at the bottom of an onion. And at the top, it has a little hole or pore. Where they branch these little fingers out into the, the world above the tongue, looking for these, these stimuli. Those are like if you left the onion to sprout. Those little green shoots, they're like the taste bud fingers waving around on the surface of your tongue, waiting for a chemical stimulus. So a stimulus that's in solution, something that we either drink or something that we're consuming and is dissolved in saliva, can activate receptors on the very tips of these cells and cause the cell to light up and send the signal on towards our brain saying that we detect something. 
The taste buds catch chemicals in a liquid. That's part of what our saliva does. It takes everything in our food and transforms it into a liquid form. Each of the cells at the tip of those little fingers is configured to grab onto different chemicals. Chemicals that trigger the basic tastes. You know, you drink a Coke and a sugar molecule comes sweeping by and boom, it uh, attaches itself to a sweetness receptor. And that activates a signal inside the taste cell in the tongue that goes into a nerve and goes into the brain and, and you'll recognize that it's sweet and it will feel sweet. That's John McQuaid, the author of Tasty, the art and science of what we eat. Just to be confusing, John's book is really about flavor more than just taste. In normal conversation, we tend to use taste and flavor interchangeably, but they're not the same thing. As you might know if you've listened to our flavor episode, flavor is much more complex than taste. It's the whole experience of eating a food. So it includes taste, but it's much bigger, and it's influenced by many other aspects of a dish. As you'll know if you try to eat with a heavy cold, flavor has a lot more to do with smell than it does with plain old taste. Flavor depends on the aroma chemicals that are sensed in our nose. Also, you should listen to that episode if you haven't. It's called Savor Flavor. And if you heard our episode called Crunch, Crackle, and Pop, you'll also know that all sorts of other things can influence the flavor we experience. Sound is another one. Check out that episode, too. Heck, check out our entire back catalog while you're at it. I say this without any bias. It's all great. But so taste is just one part of our experience of food. And on the surface, it seems super simple. I mean, really kind of basic. The general consensus is that there are only five main tastes. Bitterness, saltiness, sourness, sweetness, and umami. Umami being savoriness. There are other tastes that scientists think we might be detecting, but those are still being argued over. So taste has two primary functions in humans. The first one, it helps us survive. Paul Breslin studies taste at Rutgers University and the Monell Chemical Census Center. Taste is really a gateway for the entire gastrointestinal tract and is a basis for making the determination whether you should eat it or not eat it. Is it nutritious? Is it toxic? Will this help sustain you if you eat it and that it has calories and nutrients and minerals? Or is it poisonous? And if you eat it, you'll die, and that will end you right there with one meal. So it's important. The second function of taste is kind of like an early warning system for your metabolism. When we take food into our mouths, it's one of our first encounters with that food. So to get our body ready to be able to digest it, we can't just have the food placed right in our stomach. It's not ready for it. So we have to have the right kind of gastric juices flowing inside of our stomach. We have to have some motility to actually be able to move the food down. Maybe if we're eating something very sweet, we're going to have to have our body prepared for that blood sugar hit with um, an insulin response. Robin told us that your taste receptors will trigger all of these responses depending on what they detect. So your stomach and your pancreas and so on, they're all gearing up getting ready for what's about to hit them. That response happens even if the food never makes it to your stomach. Scientists have studied this both in animals and in people. People swish around sweet solutions in their mouths and spit them out, and their bodies get primed for sugar. Your insulin goes up, for instance, even if you just put a piece of candy in your mouth and then spit it out. So those are the two functions of taste, the conscious yes or no signal in our mouths and the unconscious metabolic response. But why these five major tastes? Why did we evolve to detect sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami? 
humans are omnivores, so it benefits us to be able to taste as much as we can. Um, humans have lived in every environment on Earth. This has helped tune our sense of taste this way and that. That whole evolutionary background helps give us the great variety of uh, taste abilities that we have today and also accounts for the great variety of the food that, that we eat and cuisine around the world. John says that actually pretty much all of the things our ancestors might have put in their mouths, plants and bugs and other animals, they all contain chemicals that fall within one or more of those five major tastes. But out of all of the potential foods we could eat, we have a particularly strong reaction to chemicals that trigger our sweet receptors. Sugars, in other words, fructose, glucose, sucrose, those light up our sweet receptors. And from there, our brains. And that makes sense. Sugar is the most concentrated source of calories there is, and we need calories to live. Scientists think that sugar is really a primordial pleasure experience and sweetness which is basically the experience of sugar, goes back to the dawn of, of complex life. So for 500 million years, life has been responding positively to, to sugar. So it's not surprising that, that humans uh, do also. And really, it's largely out of our control, our, our reaction to it. Salt is another one. We did an entire episode on salt, which, of course, you should also go listen to. All mammals need salt to live. We can't make it, so we need to find sources of it in the environment. Makes sense that we'd be able to taste it. And Paul told us salt also triggers a metabolic response, the way the taste of sugar triggers your body to produce insulin. In the case of salt, Paul has managed to show that your blood vessels will actually start relaxing a little if you swish salty water in your mouth, even if you spit it out. Your blood vessels know that to keep your blood pressure constant, you'll need to pull in more water to counterbalance that incoming salt, and they prepare accordingly. The relationship between salt and blood pressure is actually quite complicated. Our episode on salt goes into this in much more depth. But sugar and salt are tastes that we crave because they're things that we need. Sour is a little different. Very sour things don't taste good, which makes sense because strong acids damage our teeth and tissues. Some people say sourness evolved as a ripeness detector. And so we don't like really sour things because our body is telling us to hold off and wait until the fruit or berry or whatever is ripe and ready. But Paul pointed out that our response to sour is more complicated than straight-up dislike. Obviously, we like mixtures of acid with, with sugar. Like lemonade. But even without sugar, sour flavors can still be appealing. People actually do like low levels of sour taste. People will put a twist into a glass of water or a glass of seltzer water. Scientists aren't quite sure why we like these low-level sour tastes. One theory is that sour points us to vitamin C. Most mammals can make vitamin C, but we humans can't. So it's crucial that we be able to detect the ascorbic acid in fruit that gives it that puckery taste. We need that vitamin C. But there are other places we find sourness appealing. And in the case of eating virtually anything that's fermented, whatever that may be, whether it's dairy being processed into cheese or cucumbers being processed into pickles, what have you, there's acid being generated by bacteria, or in the case of yeasts, if you're making wine or beer. And we seem to like that low level of acidity. A little bit of sourness is, is pleasing to us. Our taste for that fermented sour? That could be beneficial in evolutionary terms, too. We all know that our gut microbes appreciate fermented foods, so perhaps our sour taste receptors were guiding us towards that, too. That's sour. Now on to another complicated taste, 
bitter. And yes, we've done an entire episode on bitter as well. We really have made a lot of episodes. Which is a good thing. It means we could just tell you all to go listen to them. But bitter is a weird one. We have more bitter receptors that can taste more bitter compounds, maybe hundreds of compounds, if not more. That's more than for any other taste. Things that taste bitter often contain chemicals that are toxic to us, at least in large doses. Most people in most cultures around the world will not and do not eat anything that's very strongly bitter. It's an evolutionary response to avoid poisons. But for foods that are only mildly bitter, it's a different story. Sometimes we even seek them out. Paul told us that in the real world, almost all the food that's good for us also has low levels of toxins, otherwise known as bitter flavors. We learn to enjoy, maybe even crave some bitterness so that we can get at all the other great nutrients in those bitter plants. And Paul says there's another evolutionary reason we might like bitter— Almost all medicines taste bitter, too, so our ancestors might have developed a taste for self-medicating. The fifth and final major taste is umami, and it's the most recent addition to the canon. A Japanese chemist proposed that umami should join sweet, salty, sour, and bitter back in 1908, but it wasn't really recognized as a distinct taste with its own unique chemical triggers until 1985. You may have heard of the main chemical trigger for umami that the Japanese scientist had isolated from seaweed broth. It's called MSG or monosodium glutamate. If you translate umami from Japanese, it means a pleasant, savory taste. And it's a really mild taste compared to sugar and salt and bitter. Umami never gets very strong, and we don't even like it by itself. So why can we taste it? The first thing you need to know is that glutamate primarily comes about through a transformation of protein. As protein breaks down, it's transformed into amino acids and ribonucleotides, and together this is what gives you glutamates. Savory taste is about tasting amino acids and ribonucleotides together as a cocktail. So it kind of begs the question then, when are we going to be exposed to pure free amino acids and free ribonucleotides together at the same time. And really the only times you're going to experience those is when a food is being broken down. It's somehow decomposing. And there's really only three ways that that happens. Fermentation, drying, and cooking. You'll find lots of awesome umami flavors in cooked meats or Parmesan cheese or, yes, seaweed broth. And when you taste umami you're actually detecting pre-digested protein. Although that doesn't sound that nice, it's really good news for your body. You need those amino acids from protein to build cells. <laughs> Delicious pre-digested proteins. But really, all these stories we've just told you about why we taste what we taste and why we've come to enjoy these tastes, these are just theories. We don't know exactly what our ancestors were tasting. It's impossible. But you can find some clues for how evolution has shaped taste by looking at other animals and what they can taste. Like, for example, cats. Cats are carnivores, they don't eat their veggies, and all they have left is an umami receptor. Penguins and dolphins and whales and lots of other sea mammals also have a poor sense of taste. John says they've lost a lot of taste receptors over evolutionary time. It may be because they're just swallowing fish whole, so they don't really have a need to taste them. You know, most of the taste experience occurs in when you're chewing something. So there's a lot of that in the animal kingdom where certain animals, you know, they don't need to taste something. And so the, it falls into disuse and kind of is evolutionarily filtered out. And there's been plenty of time for that filtering to happen because the sense of taste is incredibly ancient. It goes back to the origin of complex life on Earth. Because once you have complex life, which is more than just single cells floating around, which you have multi-celled 
uh, creatures, they have uh, an inside and an outside. And the outside has to detect what is food and what isn't food. So it goes back at least 500 million years. And this is why animals that live in the water still have taste receptors in what might seem like strange places. In a lot of fish, taste receptors aren't just in their mouths. Tom Finger is a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine who studies taste, and a lot of his work has focused on fish. So the taste molecules are dissolved in the water and they can swim around and detect taste because the taste molecules are contacting the surface of their skin. So catfish, for instance, have taste buds scattered across their whiskers and the whole body surface. Turns out we are more like catfish than you might think, because we have taste receptors outside of our mouths, too. They show up in a lot of the tissues that interact with these external molecules in our environment. So in us, the equivalent of catfish whiskers is the lining of your gut. So anything that's still in your stomach is not really in you. You're sort of like a giant donut. There's a hole running all the way through you from mouth to anus, and anything inside that is, in some sense, not really in you. So you have taste receptors throughout your GI tract going all the way from your mouth through your intestines. Paul says these likely have an anticipatory role like the ones in our mouths do. The taste receptors in our digestive system, they also help prime the body for the nutrients that are about to be absorbed into our bloodstream. And that's not all. There are also taste receptors in what I would call regulatory organs or metabolic organs. And that would include the pancreas, the liver, uh, fat tissue, um, the thyroid, and the brain. And what they're doing, we really don't know. But it's a safe bet that in a species like ours, that they're extremely important. Back in Colorado, Tom has been working on figuring out what some of these receptors on other parts of our body do. And he says by calling them taste receptors, we're kind of missing the point. So the taste receptors, actually, from the standpoint of biology, you can think of them as just tools. And they're tools for detecting chemicals. So the body can use these tools anywhere. And because we give them the name taste receptors, we're confusing function with um, the role in biology. One of Tom's projects has been to figure out what the heck taste receptors are doing in our noses. Turns out these receptors detect chemicals put out by a harmful bacteria in the air that we breathe and then tell our body to mount an immune response. Like in our mouths, the nose taste receptors are just chemical detectors. So that's how taste works and how it evolved. And now here's the cool part. As we learn more about taste, we can start to hack it. For fun, but maybe also for health. But before we tell you how to mess with your friend's taste buds at your next dinner party, this week's sponsors. Did you know that women change bra sizes an average of six times in their lives? That's why finding the perfect fitting bra can make all the difference. Thankfully, Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements and range from sizes AA to G, including signature half-cup sizes. So no matter your body shape, you are sure to find a fit that's right for you. And with Third Love's Fit Finder, it only takes 30 seconds to determine the best size and style for your body. Most bras sold today are underwire bras, which were invented in 1931 by a Russian immigrant, Helene Pons. After fleeing the Russian Revolution, Helene became a celebrated costume designer on Broadway. Having trained as an artist, she considered costumes as sculptures. And she was known for developing undergarments that invisibly reshaped actors' bodies, disguising sloping shoulders, narrow hips, small busts, and other so-called flaws. Her underwire bras were considered little short of miraculous by her clients. But they only really became mainstream after the Second World War. Before that, the metal was needed by the military. Today, you can choose between wireless 
wireless or wired bras at Third Love and say goodbye to slipping straps, side overflow, and all the rest while you're at it. Third Love stands behind their products so much that they're willing to let our listeners try a bra from their 24-7 collection free. Just pay $2.99 for shipping. You can even take the tags off it, wear it, wash it, and really live in it for 30 days to make sure it's your new favorite bra. Then, if you love it, keep it, and they'll charge your card. But if you don't love it, you can send it back for free and your card will not be charged. Go to thirdlove.com slash gastropod to get started today. That's thirdlove.com slash gastropod. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. ZipRecruiter is a search engine for finding and posting jobs. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. And with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Employment ads from the past can sound very strange to our contemporary ears. Sarah Botter has collected some of the most peculiar historical classifieds in her book, Strange Red Cow. For example, Wanted, a young lady of German parentage, must be a 36-inch bust and understand bookkeeping on a small scale. Apply Milbauer and Bleiweiss, Ladies and Mrs. Cloaks, 419 Broadway. Only ladies with the right size breast need apply. It wasn't actually until 1973 that the Supreme Court ruled it illegal to discriminate by sex in employment ads. Thank goodness. Now we just have to fix that gender wage gap. Fortunately, employment ads have joined the 21st century with ZipRecruiter, where there's no need to juggle paperwork, business cards, or even emails and calls. Just post once, quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses and try it for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com gastropod. That's right, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com gastropod. So one of the many intriguing things about taste is that although it's one of our oldest senses, it was kind of ignored by science for a long time. It's much easier to study the detection of light, for example, or sound, because these are sort of shared experiences, whereas an experience of taste or, or smell also, which are both components of flavor, is a subjective experience. And so basically, once science tried to wrap its arms around this, it, it failed. Um, and so a lot of scientists kind of gave up. And it's not just that it's hard to study. We also ignored taste because scientists and philosophers have looked down on it for thousands of years. John says the ancient Greeks considered it the lowest and grossest of the senses. There's a historical uh, tradition in Western culture that makes taste and smell, particularly taste, second-class senses because they're tied to eating, which is a uh, kind of a base activity, you know, devouring stuff, putting stuff in your mouth, uh, chewing it, uh, you know, it's what animals do. Uh, and of course, we're animals, but it wasn't considered a higher sense. Still, throughout history, people had theories about how many tastes there were and how the tongue detected them. But until really quite recently, most of what we knew about taste was 
wrong. The most enduring myth of the past century, and it's one that you might have even learned when you were a kid. It's a myth known as the tongue map, and we can lay the blame for this mistake at the feet of Edwin G. Boring. He was uh, an influential 20th century psychologist. And he decided to write the definitive book on the history of the senses, a big tome. And while Mr. Boring was researching the taste section of his book... He came across this study that had been done. This was, I think, uh, in the 40s he was writing this. And he came across a study that had been done about 30 years earlier by a German scientist that looked at the sensitivity of the tongue to different tastes. And uh, this study showed that depending on where you were on the tongue, the sensitivity to these tastes uh, differed. Sometimes by a little, sometimes by a little bit more. You know, like one part of the tongue was more sensitive to sweetness, another part was slightly more sensitive to salt. The German scientist published his data in the early 1900s, and then decades later, Boring drew on that data to draw his graph. But it was an exaggeration. The original data, you know, there are very limited differences. And suddenly now there are huge differences in this graph. Because Boring was so influential, this tongue map idea spread through the scientific community. And then uh, pretty soon that morphed into maps of the tongue that showed uh, clearly demarcated areas, you know, like on a geographical map where a border is a clear border. It's like the tip of the tongue tastes sweet and the back is bitter. Soon, these maps swept popular culture as well. And they appeared in textbooks, and they were used in uh, children's uh, scientific experiments in elementary schools, and kind of became the conventional wisdom that different parts of the tongue were anatomically devoted to different tastes. So Boring was totally wrong, but scientists didn't figure out just how the tongue works, how the taste receptors work, until quite recently. And that's because of a much better understanding of genetics. Back in 2000, John actually visited scientists at the NIH when they were first isolating taste genes. Essentially, they were looking for a needle in a haystack. They knew what taste receptors were, and they knew that there were genes to express them, but they didn't know how to match the two. And basically, through kind of a a sieve-like process, they managed to isolate a sweetness receptor and match it with its DNA code in the genome. The scientists were working with rats, but fortunately, the human gene and receptor for sweetness is pretty similar. So once they had that, finding the human version of it was quite easy. And once you have that, you can begin to experiment. You can make copies of sweetness receptors yourself, put them in a Petri dish, and uh, see how they react to different uh, substances, to sugar, to uh, artificial sweeteners, et cetera, et cetera. And from there, you can begin to understand how the sensation of taste is triggered, how it's sent to the brain, and ultimately, how we perceive it. One thing scientists have figured out is that, as we said, boring was wrong. Every taste bud on our tongue has multiple receptors, and those pick up many different tastes. It is absolutely not true that one section of the tongue is dedicated to sweet. There may be slight differences in sensitivity, but everything is being sensed everywhere. But we're not all sensing it exactly the same. There are pretty significant individual differences. And where they come from? That's something that Linda Bartoshuk has been trying to get a handle on for decades. She's a professor at the University of Florida and kind of a legend in the taste world. Well, it all started when we were doing work in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. And we were working on the first genetic known taste was to something called PTC. It was a bitter compound, and it was known since the 1930s that some people couldn't taste it. 
So I was working on that problem. And we decided that the methods that had been used on the problem up to then were very old-fashioned, and we were going to do something more modern. We were going to actually see how bitter this compound was, not just whether you could taste it or not, but how bitter it was. Well, it turns out the variation was simply enormous. And some of the people got such incredibly intense, bitter taste from this that we started calling them super tasters. Yes, Linda is the one who coined the term super tasters. A lot of listeners have asked us to do an episode on super tasters. Super tasters are people who experience particularly intense taste sensations. The most intense taste sensations that are experienced by any people, those are super tasters. Once Linda and her colleagues identified this group and started studying them, they quickly realized that it's not just bitter PTC that super tasters taste more intensely. It's everything. Yes, it is. Sweet is more intense to super tasters by about a factor of two or three. There is actually a continuum. It's not a yes or no super taster or not. Linda herself is in the not category. She's on the non-tasting end of the taste spectrum. But a lot of people fall somewhere in the middle. Most scientists estimate that roughly a quarter of us are what they call non-tasters, about a quarter are super tasters, and the rest are sort of medium. Part of it has to do with how many taste buds you have. Taste buds are on the human tongue in structures called papillae, and uh, fungiform papillae are the ones on the front of the tongue. If you under magnification, they look like little button mushrooms on your tongue. And super tasters have many, many more of these than people like me do. We decided to test some of these things when we were out on tour with Pop-Up Magazine. First, we wanted to find out who could taste PTC. We got a whole group of people in a back room in one of the theaters and told them to put a piece of paper on their tongue. Why, why are you nervous? Because I don't really know what I said yes to at this point. So <laughs> I don't know what's about to go down. I'm a role model, so I hope it's not like drugs or anything. I don't know if it was peer pressure or what, but they all did it. They put these slips of paper on their tongues without even knowing what it was. Just put it on the tongue. Yeah. yeah. It's paper for me. Yeah. Uh, really? I totally taste it. It tastes really terrible. Yeah. It tastes bitter. It's, it's yeah, really bitter. bitter. It's paper bitter. for me. Uh, it's paper for you too? Yeah. You have a very, very bitter, gross taste in my mouth. It tastes like aspirin or something. It, it tastes exactly like aspirin. Yeah. That's, I totally agree. Oh, Tim, you look like you're in pain. Yeah. It's, it's dreadful. In our little group, we had four bitter tasters, Cynthia, Tim, Jeff, and pop-up boss Doug McGray. I had a little bit of a bitter aftertaste, but not enough to scrunch up my face like those guys. One of our fellow contributors, Kelly Carter, she didn't taste anything. Neither did another couple of the pop-up crew, Tina Antolini and Anita Badajo. No bitterness, just paper. You can try this at home. I ordered the PTC paper off Amazon. And it was kind of amazing how different all our reactions were. So not everybody who tastes PTC is automatically a super taster. But Linda says it's the first step. You have to be able to taste it. But then super tasters taste it super intensely. Super tasting is much more than this initial bitter compound we first discovered. It happens to all taste. But is there some biological utility that, that made were super tasters the originals and there was a mutation that made the rest of us? I don't, I don't know. It's a very interesting question. But my picture of this, I think about the Neanderthals wandering around, or maybe the first humans of our type wandering around. And by the way, women are more likely to be super tasters than our men. And that gives you a clue. So maybe when they moved into new territory, the chief sent his wife out to check out the local plants and see if they were okay. And if she didn't die, they were safe. 
But you'd want a super taster to do that because the super taster would taste the bitter more intensely. And bitter is a signal for poison. This ability to taste PTC, it's really interesting. It evolved independently in humans and in our closest relatives, chimps. That implies that having some of your population as bitter tasters has an evolutionary advantage for the species as a whole. Otherwise, it wouldn't persist in humans over time like this, and it wouldn't pop up separately in other species. Tasting PTC or not seems to be largely governed by one gene. Being a super taster is more complex. Linda suspects multiple different genes contribute, although she hasn't identified them yet. But there are patterns in the population as to who is likely to be a super taster or a non-taster. For example, Caucasians have the fewest super tasters. And men have fewer super tasters than women, and this led... (laughs) One of my postdocs once to say white men can't taste, but I told her she couldn't say that because it's politically incorrect. What's funny is that all three of the white guys backstage at Pop-Up could taste bitter, and remember, that's the first step towards being a super taster, but the two African-American women couldn't. While our group was awesome, it wasn't exactly statistically significant. But so, PTC strips are the first step. The next step in diagnosing whether you're a super taster or not is to count your taste buds. This involves dyeing your tongue blue, and funnily enough, our pop-up buddies didn't want to do that before the show. I don't blame them. I made Jeff dump a teaspoonful of blue food coloring on his tongue, and he looked really funny. Yeah, I, mean, I think maybe you gave him a little. We overdid it. We maybe overdid it. At least it. you overdid it on Jeff. Um, it was a test run. That's what husbands are for. <laughs> of course, we didn't read the instructions. There are instructions for this experiment online. We thought you just squeezed out some dye on your tongue and looked to see what stuck and what didn't, because blue dye doesn't stick to taste buds. But it's a little more complicated than that. So after Jeff spent many minutes swishing out blue water, we decided to tackle this more scientifically back at home. We found instructions at Scientific. American. We'll link to it on our website. So it turns out we're both basically average, at least when it comes to this. And actually, this is not a bad thing. Now, super tasters are going to be a little bit fussier than other people because they're going to notice bitter whenever it's present. And they're going to be foods they don't like, like leafy green vegetables that tend to be bitter. So there'd be um, perhaps an advantage to non-tasting if you were in an environment with a lot of bitter compounds that are safe. But what if you're in an environment with a lot of bitter compounds that are dangerous? Now the super taster has the advantage. Super tasters generally don't eat as many vegetables, so they seem to be at a higher risk for colon cancer. But they also tend not to drink and smoke as much, so they're apparently at lower risk for head and neck cancer. Swings and roundabouts. But all you super tasters out there, you can stop patting yourselves on the back. In some sense, it was a poor choice of name because super implies something special, great. I'm delighted that I am not a super taster. It just means more intense. And the truth is, I look around at extreme super tasters, and I don't think they're having as much fun with food as I am. Let me let me qualify that one step. We have looked at the pleasure that super tasters and others get from food. And if you look at the favorite food of a super taster, they really love it. And you look at something they don't like, they absolutely hate it. So the super taster experiences a much larger hedonic range of extremes to like and dislike. I'm sort of more in the middle. I like a lot of things, but not terribly much. The super taster may like fewer, but the ones he or she likes, they get tremendous pleasure from. Now, that's interesting. For example, chefs tend to be super tasters, more of them than you'd expect by chance. 
is does that have something to do with the pleasure they get from their favorite foods? We don't know. I'd like to see somebody study that who knows cuisine more than I do. This phenomenon of super tasters getting more pleasure from their favorite food, given how central food is to our pleasure circuits overall, this has really interesting implications beyond food. I mean, are super tasters kind of a different group? Are they hedonically more volatile? Do they get more pleasure from a lot of things? That's a real possibility. We just don't know yet. This question of pleasure is a really complicated one. Whether or not you're a super taster is only one factor in whether or not you're deeply enjoying your meal. For example, research Linda's done shows that overweight people get more pleasure from their food than thin people. And that's complicated, too, because that brings us to the connection between our sense of taste and obesity. We live in a world where sugar is everywhere, but we're built to love sweets so intensely. The signal from sh- for sugar is, you know, give me more sugar. <laughs> And that was totally fine back when we encountered sugar very, very rarely, in fresh berries maybe, if we were lucky, in wild honey. Now, of course, we have sugar at our fingertips day and night. Robin Dando, he's the food scientist at Cornell, he's been studying the connection between taste and obesity for a few years now. It's a cruel joke, really, that we've been um, put together to just go after things like sweet and fat and to really like them. We're programmed to want this in high quantities. We're programmed to kind of put on weight for the hard winter that might be coming because that evolutionarily, that means that we might stick around for longer. So it's kind of a cruel joke now that this isn't really a problem anymore, but we're still programmed the same. Robin's been studying the sense of taste in mice. One thing he's found is that as the mice become obese, they lose taste buds, and he thinks there's a connection. Now, a couple of caveats in there, of course. One is that these are mice, these aren't humans, but as I say, it's a strong indicator. And then two is, does losing a handful of taste buds actually do enough to change a person's eating habits? Again, we don't know that for sure. Uh, We're looking into both of those questions right now. So we don't know for sure, but you can easily imagine that if somebody has fewer taste buds, they might be getting less sensation from their food. So if that level of, of reward is decreased, then there are a couple of obvious things you could do to combat that. One is you could just eat more. And the other is you could eat more intensely tasting um, stimuli. So more intensely tasting usually is going to mean higher calories. So if that's the case then, that when somebody starts to put on weight, they lose taste buds, they are driven to consume more, then that means that they're going to put on more weight, lose more taste buds, and be driven to consume more again. So it's kind of a, a dangerous positive feedback loop that we think could have something to do with the obesity epidemic that we're living in right now. Supporting his hypothesis that gaining weight reduces taste sensation and that losing weight might bring it back, Robin says there's some evidence that people who lose weight quickly after gastric bypass surgery are more sensitive to taste afterwards. He's also found that there are hormone receptors in your taste buds, too. They're picking up on circulating hormones like leptin, which signals us to feel full. Those hormone levels change in obese people, too, so that could also be affecting their experience of taste. And so maybe in the future there will be a way to use these taste-related phenomena to help people lose weight. So there are lots of um, issues that happen with the body when uh, someone becomes obese, and this would only be one of them. But if there is a portion of the process of becoming obese that could be attributed to the taste buds, then we'd really be interested in trying to kind of put that right, to kind of hack the taste bud to make it do things that we want people to do in terms of food choice, then 
I think that's a really exciting idea. This is all just speculation right now. We don't know enough to start hacking our taste buds to try to reverse obesity. But we do know that our sense of taste can be manipulated and changed for all sorts of reasons. Like take pregnant women. All of a sudden, things that used to taste good are suddenly disgusting. They throw up more frequently. Basically, their hormonal changes are making them more sensitive to potential toxins, more sensitive to bitter flavors. Children are the same. They're really sensitive to bitter when they're young. These are two super vulnerable groups. So it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that they'd reject bitter and potentially poisonous foods. What you eat, your culture, your memory associations, that has a really strong impact on your sense of taste, too. John told us about a group of indigenous Peruvians who are all PTC bitter tasters. But where they live, one of the staple foods that they rely on is this really, really bitter potato relative. And so they seem to have reset their bitter taste perception, lowered it to the point where they can all eat and enjoy this potato, even though their genes would seem to indicate otherwise. So even if you are genetically sensitive to PTC, it doesn't mean you can't learn to enjoy bitter flavors. I taste PTC pretty strongly, and I love bitter. Other tastes can be reset, too. We humans are really malleable. Robin told us about research showing that if you start eating food with less salt or less sugar in it, you become more sensitive to salty and sweet foods. There's even some evidence that your mood affects how things taste. Robin's been working on this, too. So our model was we set up a stand at uh, the hockey game at Cornell. If you're interested in sports and going to Cornell, then you're probably um, going to the men's hockey game. He found that enthusiastic fans whose team won, their food tasted better. But if the team lost, there went that delicious hot chocolate, not so delicious anymore. And this makes sense because there are those hormone receptors in the taste bud. And one of the hormones they pick up on is serotonin. Serotonin levels are connected to happiness versus depression. So there's lots of interesting new science happening here, too. There is a group that looked at SSRIs, so these are selective um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So uh, probably around about the most prescribed type of antidepressant in the country, and found that Indeed, people do start to perceive taste, um, particularly sweet taste, as being different when they have a lot of these antidepressants inside of their body. All of this mood and antidepressant research, the taste bud sensitivity and obesity research, all of this might help scientists hack our taste buds in the future to improve our health. But there are some fun ways to hack our taste buds today. Nikki had the chance to try something that I am super curious about. It was when I was over in London. Hi, my name is Emma Zhang, and we are at the Mixed Reality Lab in City University, London. So uh, we have this uh, device over here, which is a small device which you can put in your mouth and uh, you will feel a virtual taste sensation. Basically, there are these two silvery plates hooked up to a set of wires, and you put the tip of your tongue in between them, which I did, and then Emma electrocuted my tongue. All right, here goes. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Oh my god. That was ridiculous. Can I do it again? The taste she sent me was super sour. This is how it works. So for example, when we put something on our tongue, the chemicals will translate into an electrical signal in our brain. And what we're doing here is to reproduce those electric signals. So you will feel the same taste as if you're biting a lemon. The idea that Emma and her colleagues have is that you could build this kind of digital taste into cutlery. So your ice cream, say, would taste sweeter on an electric spoon. 
I don't really know that I would sign up for getting my tongue electrocuted on a regular basis, though. Doesn't sound so much fun to me either, but I'd love to try it once, someday. There's another way to trick your taste buds. We used a pill. It's an extract from a tropical African fruit called a miracle berry. What you do is you take the pill and slowly let it dissolve and coat your tongue. We handed them out to everyone in the dressing room. Then we handed them slices of lemons and limes. My new favorite food is lemon and pills. That's amazing. I this whole lemon. Why do we get more it? lemon? Oh, my God, this lime is doesn't, amazing. Doesn't... Everyone was just sticking whole chunks of lemon and lime into their mouths like they were apple slices. And then we moved on to something that's already pretty sweet, strawberries. This is my worst nightmare. Everything is sweet. <laughs> Whoa, this is yeah, intensely, intensely uh-huh. sweet. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, it's way too sweet yeah, for me. Yeah, candy. Too sugar. much candy. Oh, it's like it's, it's been like, dipped oh, it's, in sugar. It's like kind of disgusting. It. Exactly. <laughs> it's a strange day when strawberries are so sweet that we're calling them disgusting. So Linda says scientists don't know exactly how miracle berries work, but here's the leading theory. There's a protein in the fruit that has sugar molecules on it. The protein attaches to your tongue with the sugar just out of reach. Then if you eat something acidic like a lemon, your taste buds pucker and they access the sugar molecules too. So the lemon now tastes like it's been coated with sugar. We didn't stop at fruit, though. We tried beer and olives and blue cheese, too. The olives, which I love olives. They were just pure salt, completely inedible. And the blue cheese was too salty and not funky and actually a little bit sweet. So that means that the scientific theory maybe doesn't quite explain it all, because if it's a protein with a sugar molecule attached, why would bitter and salt get so much more intense? Mysteries left to solve. This is another one you can easily try at home. We have a link to buy Miracle Berry Pills on our website. Just be aware that if you go out to lunch afterwards, like I did, your sandwich will taste disgusting. Linda says the effect lasts from about 15 minutes to about an hour and a half, depending on how strong your saliva is. So hacking your taste buds is possible. It works. But can we use it to achieve our health goals? There's some evidence that this doesn't work as intended. One way many of us hack our taste buds on a regular basis already is by consuming artificial sweeteners. These are non-sugar chemicals that trigger our sweet taste receptors, but our bodies don't get any calories from them. Scientists have been showing that replacing sugar with artificial sweeteners isn't helping people lose weight. In fact, with artificial sweeteners, people might actually be eating more. Maybe because our bodies are primed for sugar, but we're not getting those calories. And that triggers a whole set of reactions. You know, and we should pay more attention to that. And by the way, that could be true of everything we do. For example, when you make acids taste sweet with miracle fruit, the body's expecting sugar. If we were really eating a lot of it, would that have consequences? It probably would. We ought to keep an open mind about that. Because when we come up with these things, uh, it's, it's not nice to trick Mother Nature. She sometimes has her ways of getting even. And it's very, very important to try to think of how things could go wrong. That's our job as scientists. So we need to be careful. But this uncertainty, this is what makes the science of taste really exciting. It's still such an open field. Robin told us that scientists are still trying to figure out exactly how sour works, for example. And there are lots of scientists trying to show that we have more than five basic tastes. We'll write about that in our sustaining supporters email. That's for folks who give $5 an episode or $9 a month. You can sign up at Patreon or on our website. In any case, there is a lot more still to learn about taste. It's funny. Taste is one of the oldest tools we have to make sense of the world and one of the least well understood. Thanks again to Third Love for sponsoring today's episode. Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements and range from sizes AA to G, 
including signature half-cup sizes. Third Love stands behind their products so much that they're willing to let our listeners try a bra from their 24-7 collection free. Just pay $2.99 for shipping. Go to thirdlove.com slash gastropod to get started today. And another sponsor, check out New York Times bestselling culinary mystery author Joanne Fluke's new recipe-filled culinary caper. In Banana Cream Pie Murder, series sleuth Hannah Swenson returns from her honeymoon to find Lake Eden ripe with murder. Can she solve the case without going bananas, or will the killer give her the slip? Pick up your copy of Banana Cream Pie Murder by Joanne Fluke anywhere books are sold. It's totally appealing. Visit joannefluke.com or kensingtonbooks.com for more info. Thanks this episode to all the people we spoke with, John McQuaid, Linda Bartoshuk, Paul Breslin, Robin Dando, Tom Finger, Emma Jong. We have links to their books and research on our website. And a huge thanks to our partners, Tim and Jeff, and our friends and colleagues who are on tour with us with Pop-Up Magazine. The backstage taste hacking was ridiculously fun, and you all were great sports. We'll be back with a new season in four weeks. In the meantime, catch us on tour. Our Boston Museum of Science show is sold out, but the Michigan State University Science Festival performance is first come, first served. No tickets necessary. See you there.